Veterans Path, helping veterans find peace, acceptance, transformation, and honor through practical tools like meditation and mindfulness, physical and outdoor experiences, and a community of camaraderie. I'm John McCaskill, a Navy SEAL commander turned mindfulness teacher. Here on the Veterans Path podcast, I interview veterans, athletes, corporate leaders, and many others who found peace through the practices of meditation and mindfulness, breaking down the stigma of pursuing mental health and making it a priority, improving and saving lives. All right, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good day. My guest today is a good friend of mine, a fellow Navy SEAL, retired Master Chief Bob Newman. Bob served as a SEAL for over 28 years. While on active duty, he founded two nonprofit programs focusing on fostering healthy lifestyles for military families and building resiliency for transitioning military members. Throughout his career, Bob has served as a special operations leader, building high-performance teams and conducting our nation's most sensitive operations. His expertise is sought out by leaders in operational and diplomatic arenas. Bob is an avid endurance cyclist and is planning to ride his bike across the country to raise money and awareness for our nation's veterans and discussing the importance of resiliency for our veterans through exercise and civic outreach while spreading awareness about the impacts of mental health and suicide on our communities. Last but not least, Bob is passionate about mindfulness and meditation, and he and, he and I have had several great conversations about this in the past, and now you all get to join us for yet another. We're going to learn a lot more about Bob, his time in the Navy, his work with nonprofits, his cycling, his journey to mindfulness, and what he's doing now, all here on the Veterans Path Podcast. Bob, that was a mouthful, man. I think I'm out of breath just reading that. <laughs> so <laughs> thanks for uh, sharing that bio with me. You've got a hell of a background, uh, and thanks for being on the show with me, man. Absolutely. Appreciate it's it. my pleasure, and I'm really excited to be a part of this. You know, a lot of the podcasts that I listen to or participate in, I've listened on the PAC side, and I recognize that we're all telling, like, stories of trauma and struggle, which is cool because it's totally human. But, you know, with Veterans Path, you're seeking to inspire people sort of get outside and find that mindfulness piece. So at the end of the day, it is all very positive. Even if we're sharing some trauma, the reality is is we're really trying to build people up and help them in a, in a positive light. So I'm super excited. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's thanks for laying the groundwork for my intro here. So as I'm trying to start every show, I, I try to share what it is that we do with Veterans Path. Yeah. You covered a little bit there with the mindfulness and the outdoor settings. Um, and then I also wanted to cover what we're doing specifically with the podcast, not this episode so much, but the podcast. So Veterans Path, we introduce veterans to meditation and mindfulness, typically in outdoor settings, so they can re- rediscover a sense of peace, acceptance, transformation, and honor. And that's where the word path in our name comes from. And the point of this podcast is to make people more aware of what we do to increase support and attendance at our retreats while simultaneously reducing the stigma around seeking mental health support. Listeners can directly support Veterans Path by clicking on the support button on the podcast or by visiting veteranspath.org forward slash donate. Okay, that all said. (laughs) Again, another another mouthful. So uh, kind of standard scene setters that we do for for our guests or that I do for my guests is, you know, just tell us a little bit more about Bob that wasn't covered in the bio that I just read there. 
Yeah, so I think uh, for listening to your podcast, you typically ask people where they grew up, right? Yeah, that kind of stuff, exactly. Yeah, so I grew up in southeastern Pennsylvania. We call it the tri-state area because we had Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and um, Maryland right there. So just north of Wilmington, Delaware, and south of PA. I'd say uh, for, you know, growing up in the 80s, I had a pretty typical childhood, you know, came from a broken home. My parents divorced when I was four years old. I have one older sister that's uh, two years older than me. Um, that we fought, you know, vigorously all throughout our adolescence, and now we've come to have a very endearing relationship, and she's one of my best friends. Um, yeah, enlisted in the Navy at 17 years old. Uh, I knew that college wasn't in the cards for me because I just had an adversarial relationship with school pretty <laughs> much from uh, elementary school on. Uh, did just enough to kind of squeak by, and... Uh, Many men in my family had served in the military, and I knew that it was a path I was going to go on. Uh, my, my father uh, inspired me to seek out something challenging. He was a paratrooper uh, in the 82nd Airborne. He did uh, uh, a one-year deployment to uh, Vietnam. And when he went through jump school, there was a number of SEALs that were going through training. There were actually UDT folks that were transitioning to the SEAL teams when, they, when it was getting stood up. You know, the SEAL teams were founded in 1962. This was 1965, so there were still a few underwater demolition team, you know, what we called as the frogmen in the Navy, sure. were transitioning into the SEAL teams. And there was about seven of these guys going through jump school with my dad, and he was just so impressed by their demeanor, their character, and how, you know, back then it was a very intense training regimen compared to when you and I went through jump school. It was sort of a walk in the park compared to bugs. <laughs> Yeah. And my dad was just in awe of the fact that these guys could shake off all the training, and he would tell this one story about a couple of the guys were, you know, maybe not following the, the instructions that were put out by the instructors or challenging them, so the instructors challenged them to duck walk up the tower like, three <laughs> times, and he says those guys duck, duck walk up and down the tower three times and didn't even break a sweat, and it's like, what an incredible human being. So that inspired me to do some research about the SEAL teams and kind of find out what they were all about, and then I was hooked. Yeah, so this is... You graduate, you're 17 years old, and you've, you said you've had that adversarial, adversarial education. And no, knowing you now, I mean, that's completely different at the Bob. I know you're a lifelong learner, constantly yeah. you know, reading, learning, everything, kind of absorbing everything. But anyhow, um, 17 years old, decide, hey, you know what? College isn't for me. Any further education isn't for me. I'm going in the Navy. That's a new type of education, but I'm going in the Navy. What year was that? 19, when I made the commitment, uh, to, in my mind, it was 1989. I enlisted in January of 1990. Okay. And I went into boot camp and, and, you know, through the delayed entry program. So it wasn't until August of 1990 that I went into boot camp. And the situation of the world in 1990 versus where it was September 11th, 2001, you know, 11 years later. Yeah. So where were you September 11th, 2001? So I was in a platoon at SEAL Team 2. I was the LPO of my platoon, and we were actually in our, um, you know, our urban training phase about maybe four months prior to deployment. And uh, again, just like everyone that lived, was alive that day, remember exactly where they were. And what was uncharacteristic was we were actually beginning our training regimen that day. Um, you know, we were at a training site on the East Coast, but what was uncharacteristic was 
we were in a high bay where all our equipment was stored, getting ready for that day's evolution because it was first thing in the morning. We had done our briefings and we were loading our magazines, getting ready for the first runs of the day. And someone had brought like a little portable TV, which that's what I'm getting to is our characteristic. So this TV is on playing the news yeah. right after the briefing while we're getting our gear ready to go. And then someone drew the, our attention to the fact that the first aircraft had hit, you know, one of the towers. And I think we all had the same sort of, you know, immediate conclusion was like, oh, man, that's some sort of freak accident. In my mind was it was like a Piper Cub or some other aircraft. Right. right? I had the same thought. Then I yeah. went around to the TV, and by the time the whole platoon had organized around the TV, right at that moment, they caught the second aircraft hitting towers. And then... I mean, my heart just sort of shudders when I think about that impression. Like, yeah, we were already training. Right we were already training to go to war. I had done two deployments to Bosnia at that point, and we knew we were going to be going into Kosovo with this rotation. And I was like, wow, this is going to be a completely different deployment than we've ever experienced before. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, what was that? So I was 29 years old. You yeah. Know, realizing, okay. This, this is going to be a game changer, and we're going to war. Definitely. You know, the younger guys in my platoon, they kind of weren't exactly clear what it was going to shape up to be, and then, you know, the years I mean, really on. anybody. I mean, yeah. I mean, even you who had been in for 11 years, Yeah. I mean, were you sure what it was going to shape up to no, be? Most gosh, likely no, not. No. Uh, I, I mean, I remember very clearly I was at Chow, at Bud's. Uh, for those who are listening, if you don't know what Bud's is, it's basic underwater demolition SEAL training out in Coronado, and I was there in the you know the first phase when it when it happened uh, actually not even first phase it was the PTRR which is the pre pre first phase piece and uh, you know I was all excited about being at Bud's training to be a Navy SEAL hey hey you know this is going to be this is going to be great and then I saw that on the news and I was like oh wow okay reality is about to set in right. this is this is no joke uh, we're we're really going somewhere from here. Little did I know we would be still in the same war. Here we are, 2020, you know, 19 years later. It's, yeah. it's, it's insane. And when we've been fighting nonstop in the teams since then. Yeah. So, um, there's, there are, so I did want to, yeah. So you said stuff that wasn't in the bio, and I do want to try and be as transparent as I can. So, one of the things that's not in the bio that I think is important because it helps shape me today um, is, you know, I, I'm a single parent of three kids. I have one child that's in college and I have two at home. And um, that leads into something we'll, I hope we talk about later, which is building balance and harmony in life. But um, you know, that, that is something that's, I've been a single parent for five and a half years now. Um, and that is certainly something that I wouldn't have planned out in my life. And uh, you know, it is, it's very fulfilling and challenging and scary all at the same time. So, you know, and I've had a lot of single parents that have worked for me or worked with me throughout my career. And uh, it's been interesting to kind of be able to follow that path and be inspired by some of these young, most of them are young ladies that are single parents and just totally in awe of what they go through, especially when their kids are younger. Sure. Mine were a little bit older when the divorce happened. Yeah, so. I mean, um, I'm, I'm on my second marriage and I don't have, don't have kids my, from my first, and so I can only imagine the the emotional um, rigors that is, the physical rigors that is. I mean, it's got to be tiring. Uh, so I, I and, and trying to give them the best life. You know, my, yeah, my sure. oldest daughter, because of this situation uh, of our divorce, that uh, I hope to get the chance to talk about in more detail later. So I won't address it here. But a lot of her childhood was taken from her. You know, at a young age, 
And so I want to make sure that the younger two children are able to experience quite a bit more of, of their childhood. You know? Yeah. Um, and then so the, this, the last part that I want to share that's not on the bio is, um, and, and I'm making this comment because he had made the observation like, oh, you know, Bob is a life learner. And what I want to share about my vulnerability is from the outside, most people that know me probably had this image of Bob of this super squared away, totally professional person that ha is, that's the mask I wear yeah. for everyone that I project to, whether it's a, a, somebody that I, I work with or somebody that in cycling with or in the nonprofits with or whatever else. But just like I, I believe everybody else has got their own shadow, their own dark side of them and have their own struggles. And so that's the honest side of me is like, there's, my life sucks. <laughs> you know, in, in some regards, there's aspects I have no control over. There's 25 things on my to-do list, and I execute one or two of them and call that a good day, right? So I hope that maybe that resonates with people out there that, you know, we put on these faces for folks, um, and that is who we are. It's not like it's disingenuine, right? But at the same time, that internal, that self-talk that we have that allows us to go in those dark places and be depressed or not get be as functional or as productive as we wish to be is something that we sort of are tearing with each day. Absolutely. Uh, and every day is its own little struggle for me. So I just want to share that because I, I, I get the impression sometimes people think I've got my stuff all wired tight and I'm <laughs> awesome and I'm really far from it. Well, I'm, I'm I, learning and growing through this. Um, I well. don't know that they necessarily have the wrong impression. I think there's some, you know, somewhere in the middle is probably true. Like you, and I've talked about this on past couple of episodes, is imposter syndrome and how mm, people are their yeah, biggest absolutely. critics and how they may uh, meet with a group and feel that they don't belong in that group because that group is so squared away. So you have a perception of that, all the other people in that group, one, that isn't necessarily true. And then you have a perception of yourself also that is definitely not true. I mean, I, I know, Bob, you are in fact squared away. I mean, I've known you for a while. So there's got to be somewhere in the middle that's true. Uh, you know, the, that group that you're a part of, whether it's the cycling team, whether it's the nonprofits, whether it's the SEAL teams, um, they're not as perfect as you perceive them to be, and then you are not as imperfect as you perceive yourself to be. And, it's, and I think that's true, you know, with many it's of our own yin and yang. Totally, model. exactly, exactly. Yeah, I love that. I love the way you put that. So that mask you wear, um, there was a master chief at Bud's that uh, the CMC, I'm forgetting his name right now, but uh, when, when we were there, that would talk about the veil that you wear. Uh, that's what he called it. And he's like, look, uh, when you get out to the teams, you're going to see that, you know, one, you are not as imperfect as you think you are. And then two, all of us are not as perfect as you think we are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and this is, you know, I'm, I'm a young ensign at the time, and I, I'm looking at this guy that's been in the teams forever, and I'm like, oh, yeah, no, you're, you're perfect. <laughs> yeah. But it's not true. Not so, true, yeah. yeah. So, um, obviously, you talked about being a single parent, talked about that mask that you've worn, and uh, I, I put in some words into your mouth with the imposter syndrome. I don't know necessarily that you, you have I that. No, I feel that yeah. all the time. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's definitely part of my internal struggle. Yeah, I think, I think it's a little bit of everyone's, especially like type A personalities, uh, which I know you are. But um, in your career, uh, what are some major obstacles that you've faced, and, and how did you overcome those? So it would be balance, you know, and, and I've changed that term to harmony uh, a lot because, you know, what I shared with some friends and teammates and people I've coached that were junior to me is 
to say you want to find balance in something in the SEAL teams was really insurmountable. You know, kind of talking about a community that's on the road 280 days a year on average. You know, you can't, how could you have a balanced family life of presence, right? So I changed that to harmony. And um, that was an obstacle that um, I didn't really address until much later in my career. And, uh, you know, to some regards, it was probably what started this spiral of my marriage from falling apart. Um, and it certainly, you know, made an impact to my children. Uh, you know, one of the stories talking about balance and harmony, the real, the first time I had an awakening with it was uh, my daughter's 13th birthday, my oldest daughter. And because of my deployment cycle at the team, we were either starting, her birthday is October 14th, and we were either starting workup or our deployment in October. Last, mm -hmm. you know, so yeah. we typically were celebrating her birthday two weeks early, three weeks early, so I could be present for it, you know, give her gifts or card and have a little celebration. So it's her 13th birthday. We have a few friends over, cake and ice cream time, and she blows out the candles and she has tears in her eyes. And I'm like, Samantha, what's, what's the matter? This is your birthday. You're supposed to be happy. And she looks up at me and she says, do you know how many birthdays of mine you've been home, my actual birthdays that you've been home for that I can remember? And I said, no. <laughs> and she goes, it's three, Dad. It's her 13th birthday. And I was like, take my heart out, throw it on the kitchen floor, and stomp yeah. on it. You know, it certainly wasn't her intent. Yeah. But that was a huge wake-up call to me that like no matter what I postured and what I thought I was doing to manage my family and create that harmony, you know, that my perspective is not the same perspective my family shared. But they their perspective was is the SEAL teams was more important to dad than I am. Sure. The SEAL teams is more important to dad than his family. And uh, at that point, I was like, okay, what can I do to kind of improve this? And, uh, you know, we went to Focus, uh, which is a phenomenal program, and, and that helped my family. If you were to ask my kids, and, and we went once prior to the divorce, and then we went again after uh, my ex and I were separated. And if you asked my kids what was the most important thing we did during those transitions, they would say doing Focus. Um, and so that obstacle of, of creating harmony was harder than anything I had to do in the teams. You know, I, you know, I got kicked out of green team, uh, which most people thought would have been like a huge stroke to my ego, and, and and it did it did hit me. But you know, I broke a hard and fast rule. Uh, things didn't work out, and I just made the best of it, and I was able to get back with the team and kind of move on. And then everything else in the SEAL teams being wounded and losing teammates and all those things were really hard. Um, but none of those were things that I could control. But when I looked at my family and the impact that I had, those were things that I, I had control, and I let it get a little bit too far away from me before I started to make those those bounds. I'm trying to make good on that ground. Uh, I'm I'm glad you kept talking there for a while, <laughs> because in all honesty, and you may have been able to see it, um, I was starting to get choked up just hearing that story because I've got an almost three-year-old little girl at home, and a ten-month-old little boy, and. Uh, I have been blessed in that I haven't missed those. If, you know, I'm, I'm yeah. getting out here soon. If I weren't be, if I weren't retiring here in August, I would, I would, yeah. guaranteed miss some of those. And that just tears me apart hearing that. And then to hear the reality that she was the one who kind of highlighted it to you, uh, and that was your kind of 
to have really a wake-up call. Wake up call. Wake Absolutely. Up call. Um, so anyway, what I'm saying is I'm, I'm glad that you kept talking because if, if I'd had to talk there, it would have, I would have been sobbing. So, yeah. oh man, that's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing how our little ones can really shine a mirror or put a mirror right in front of our face and say, look, dad or, or mom, hey, yeah. wake up. Um, I haven't had it to that magnitude, but my little one has a few times um, come up to me and said, hey, dad, put your phone down or, you know, turn the TV off. I'm like, oh man, my three or almost three-year-old little girl is telling me that? Come on, John, get it, get your stuff yeah. straight, right? Yeah. So. Well, so I'll talk, so I had focus, right, family overcoming under stress is what the program's called, and it was funded by, um, Oh my gosh, I think it might have been the University of Southern California. Um, anyway, it was a SOCOM funded project and that gave my children a voice. So it's not family counseling. It is a structured program where you meet once a week for eight weeks and they give you communication skills you know, for your family. And I think there are a couple of big events that we did during those, those eight weeks, which is one that was huge for my kids was they did a timeline, an emotional timeline, and the parents did one as well. Hey, what was a time in your life when you were super happy and you wrote a date on it? It was green, it was up high on the chart, and then when were times when you're sad and you did this timeline of your happy, sad, and it gave my children a time to look at their parents and say, hey, here's things we did as a family that made me happy and stoked, and here's things that made me sad or whatever else. And that empowered them to have a dialogue. And then since then, we do family meetings on Sundays. I don't do them as often as I used to, and it's something I'm going to reincorporate. But that ability for them to know that they have a voice within the family and that their voice mattered was something that I think started to empower them to be able to, to take action and be proactive and be willing to say, hey, Dad, get off the phone. Yeah. Because we have to listen to them because they're going to only send us messages so many times. <laughs> And because if you don't, if you start to ignore that message, it's going to become the new normal. Right. And then they're just going to be like, oh, yeah, dad, that's dad. Yeah. Don't care. He's escaping on a video game or whatever else, you know. And it's that's harmony that we've had to find, and I still struggle for it. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's so. that's important that you do struggle with it. Uh, I mean, that if if you didn't, then you you wouldn't be doing it at all. Yeah. Uh, it, it is, it's a struggle. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's the right word. Um, so I want to transition from career to cycling and then you work outside your Navy career with nonprofits. But first, uh, I want to just take a quick pause here for a break for our sponsors. Welcome back. Continuing my conversation with good friend and fellow Navy SEAL, Bob Newman. What we wanted to transition to here is out of your Navy career and into what you're doing or what you were doing with cycling and the nonprofit space. And I'm gonna throw a little bit of a wrench at you here, Bob. Just wrapped up talking about balance and harmony. So wrapped up your daughter's 13th birthday. She's kind of shown that mirror in your face saying, hey dad, look at what's going be on. Be present. Yeah, be present. Um, you wanna do balance and harmony and now you throw on working in all these nonprofits and cycling. How did you uh, maintain some level of balance and harmony with, with everything that you were juggling? 
My children will tell you today that I'm still not. <laughs> <laughs> That's why it's still a struggle, I mean, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I hope that they would both say, man, I love my dad, and he is totally present with me and helpful and guiding and mentoring and doing all those things, and I'm confident that I am. But I'm also super busy, and the sure. kids that are at home with me, which is Gabby and GP, a 15-year-old and a 12-year-old, would say that dad is busier now than he was when he was active duty. Wow. You know, um, not traveling as much, but, you know, phone calls, visits, managing things. Podcasts. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's all, it's all good. And what I love and appreciate about my children so much is they recognize that I'm not doing all these things for myself. And that gives me some breathing room that they know it makes me happy to be of service and to help others. And, you know, some of the stuff I do is business development for the consulting stuff. But, sure. Um, you know, I'm still probably at like a 60-40 point where I'm doing 40, some weeks it's 40% towards nonprofits and 60% towards business and sometimes it's flip-flops. And they recognize that I'm there for them and that I'm predictable and dependable and all those other things. So they give me a lot of leeway in that. Uh, still trying to create the harmony within there and, and uh, I, you know, as I evolve through all this stuff, I, I do some tests you know, and then I have some reality checks, and I think sometimes the universe sends us signals to help us with those reality checks. Yeah, you know? yeah. nice. Yeah, like your daughter. <laughs> with yeah, that their thirteenth birthday. Yeah. So, um, as far as the cycling, uh, I'm just going to ask yep. some general questions about cycling, and then that lays the foundation for the nonprofit space spaces that you worked in. So, uh, when did you start cycling? So it was. Around 2009, I was, did a uh, deployment to Afghanistan. I was the troop chief. And uh, at the end of that deployment cycle, I started training for ultra marathons. I had just read the book, uh, Born to Run. Oh, yeah. I, just like everyone else that read it, it was like, wow, yeah, we, were, we were born to run. And I got minimalist shoes. Yep. And I started running those. <laughs> Minimalist shoes for me led to having plantar fasciitis, yep, and I'm talking here. about the legit plantar fasciitis where, like, I it's had to like, I had, yeah, when the first thing in the morning I couldn't even stand up. Yep. I'd have to rotate my ankles for four or five minutes just to put my feet on the ground. So I came home from that deployment, and while I was trying to maintain my cardio, um, you know, fitness, I started riding my bicycle. And that bicycle was a 35-pound mountain bike, and I would commute back and forth to work every day for some of my cardio. And one day, I got passed by a young lady that couldn't have been older than 21 years old on a road bike. And I'm meanwhile, I'm on my mountain bike, pushing as hard as I can, doing probably like 17 miles an hour, thinking, man, I'm flying. <laughs> and this young lady goes flying past me like I'm standing still. I was like, what the heck? And one of my teammates, I told that story the next day, was like, Dude, she's on a road bike. Yeah. You're on a mountain bike. It's a world of difference. So that weekend, I went out and test rode a, a road bike out at Fat Frogs. So you'd never ridden a road bike? I'd never ridden that. a road bike wow. before, no. <laughs> and uh, I test rode like three or four bikes, and I got on a race bike, and it was like it was on rails. Yep. And I'm like, wow, this is a total game changer. And it still was with the intent just to maintain fitness. And then I started completing some milestones. You know, I did my first... 25 mile ride, my first 30, 40, and you know, at 40 for me was sort of the tipping point because it's really uncomfortable. Your hands go numb, yeah. your butt hurts because those seats are really uncomfortable. Back hurts. Yeah, yeah, everything, but it becomes your new normal. And after 40 miles, 
I was able to kind of get to a place of my nutrition on the bike and my fitness where I could kind of keep going. And I just fell in love with it and never looked back. Nice. And uh, there was a few components I loved about cycling. The first one was I could get a phenomenal workout in, you know, an hour or two or three hour exercise, come home and not feel like I was all beat up. Yeah. If I go for a 30 minute run, I'm almost worthless for like the next four or five hours while I'm yeah. waiting for my joints to re-lubricate and the right. swelling to go down and whatever else. Meanwhile, with the bicycle, I'd come back from a three-hour ride on Sunday. My kids were probably still asleep or just now getting up, and I would cook them breakfast, and I'd be all jolly, and all those endorphins you know, from, from the exercise and the activity and the fresh air and everything were pumping through my system. And I could function as a human being the whole day. I wasn't yeah. completely spent like I was if I'd done a really hard run or something like that. And so that's what kept me into cycling. And, and then, of course, you've got, it's just a whole other tribe that I belong to of a bunch of people that are fitness-minded, outside, you know, oriented. And uh, cycling can be a very social um, activity to do. You know, if you and I go for a slow run, we can have a good talk and discussion on the run, but we're sort of at a very low aerobic, you know, tempo. Yeah. We're on cycling. We could be on upper, you know, aerobic uh, threshold. So for me, say my heart rate's around 155 to 160, and I could still be talking to you on the bike and, and having a meaningful conversation while we're getting phenomenal exercise. Yeah. And meanwhile, taking in some beautiful scenery because we're in the outdoors and you're covering a lot of mileage. You know, it's just it's a very rewarding activity. How many people ride with you in, in a group when you when Yeah, you so the group sizes will vary. You know, I mean, the larger group that I like to, the largest group that I like to ride in is probably 15 to 20 people, you know, yeah. and, and um, because it just gets to be hazardous on the road for vehicles trying to pass you and everything like that. Um, and I think optimum size is really between four to, to 10, 10 folks. And you are going at what speed when you're in that, <laughs> that group? <laughs> 25 miles an hour, you know, right. 23 to 25 miles an hour is what good. we call an A pace that we're just maintaining. Yeah. And then we'll, if we're really training hard, we'll get upwards of 28 to 30 miles an hour. Yeah, so you're you know. cruising. Yeah, we're cruising. Okay, so that group, that tribe that you mentioned, group of about 15 people, ideally moving at 23 to 28 miles per hour. And then you talked about it getting hazardous. I want to talk about that because several months ago, if you could have seen Bob, he was in a neck brace uh, because of an accident that he got in. Can you tell us how that happened and what after the, what happened after that? Yeah, so this was a little bit about the universe, I think, yeah. sending me some messages, right? So, you know, I'm 47 years old, soon to be 48. This accident that uh, you're talking about happened June 3rd. So here's the, the quick backstory. My last paid day in the Navy was May 31st. The accident happened on June 3rd. So I literally had been out of the Navy for less than a week. My insurance paperwork, none of that stuff was done. Any, anyway, uh, so it was a Tuesday morning ride uh, that, we, that we do. We call it Turbo Tuesdays. It's a pretty fast tempo ride. And we had a few riders that were a little, not less experienced. There were plenty of experienced riders, but their fitness level was maybe a little bit. They were, they were reaching to stay with this group. And I remember as we headed out on the ride, I'm like, oh, I've got to keep my eyes on these, these guys so that I can make sure I'm in a good spot to go around them if we need to, if the pace starts getting so fast. But we were in the beginning stages of this ride getting to a fast pace when I didn't anticipate anybody coming off the front wheel. And so somebody had gapped the wheel, it's what we call it, because we ride in a pace line so we can draft off of one right. another. 
And after he had come off the wheel about 25, 30 feet or so, he pulled off to the left a little bit, which is a signal that like, hey, I can't hold that pace anymore and, I, and to let other riders come by. So I think I had five or six riders behind me. So I start closing the distance now. So they were doing 28 up front, so I had to pick it up to about 30 miles an hour to close that pace. Um, and just as I got next to the rider that pulled off, he swerved right into me. Um, and I was able to push back on him just as I would do in a, in a bicycle race. And the intent is I stop his inertia from coming into me. Mm -hmm. um, and this rider just didn't kind of understand that concept. And so I pushed into him for literally like two or three solid seconds. I remember, I'll never forget because I'm looking down because my tire is now like on the white line at the yeah. edge of the road. And there's like a two foot ditch on Jeez. the other side of the road. I want to put a picture of this uh, in in the video promo so people see what happened and, and oh. where your head hit. Oh yeah, so I'll go ahead and yeah. go. But I want people to take a look. At so it. I'm leaning into him what I believe is long enough, and when I let up, he just he's still pushing into me. Yeah, and I remember looking like as I'm flying over my handlebars, I see my speedometer, and, and the thought going through my head as I'm flying through the air is this is going to hurt. <laughs> <laughs> It's like those memes, yeah, this, this and, is the moment before pain. And as I deconstruct it now, what I believe happened is I went over my handlebars, my bike went into the ditch, and I remember going into the ditch being like, if I can keep it upright for a few seconds, I'll slow down and it won't hurt so bad. And yeah. I was saying all that in my head while I was already flying through the air. Yeah. What I believe happened was the very edge of my helmet hit the bottom rung of this fence post, and I just slid along it until I hit the, the upright, the Jeez. vertical fence post. And my head snapped all the way over to my right shoulder. And it made like, in my mind, what was like a chiropractic adjustment because I just heard all the yeah. of my neck cracking. And then my sh right shoulder slammed into this fence post. And my, so I like got spun around and I'm like sit, sit down on this, on this ditch. And I didn't lose consciousness. I had the big white flash. And I'm holding my shoulder and rubbing it, thinking, like, I can't believe it's not in a thousand pieces, because that's how hard it hit that fence post, you yeah. know, that inertia. And um, I didn't think anything about my neck at all. And all I could hear was wheezing behind me, so the gentleman that was in the, there was only one other guy crashed with me, the guy who kind of swerved into me. Yeah. He, meanwhile, separated his sternum, broke three ribs, punctured oh, his wow. lung, and separated his AC joint. He can't breathe, really. He's, like, hyperventilating. Yeah. Sure. So... I go over to him to try and calm him down while the other bicyclists are turning around, coming back to our aid. And uh, once once they get to him, I'm like, okay, I'm trying to assess my damage. My adrenaline is pumping, so I'm sort of like still on an adrenaline surge. And I go to pick my bike up out of the ditch, and I can't like pick it up. <laughs> and I and I'm thinking, my, literally in my mind, I'm like, oh, maybe I broke my scapula. I can't reach that far back in my shoulder. Maybe something's broken my scapula. Yeah. Because I was still in, like, incredible pain, you know, basically from my belly button to my eyeballs. But the adrenaline is also... Yeah, it's all kicking in. Yeah. And so, okay, something's not right. The ambulance comes. They check me out. I'm standing on the side of the road. And, John, this is what's embarrassing, and, and that's why I share this story a lot, is, um, I mean, I'm a trained you know, medically trained person. I know what to do in a head and neck injury. Yeah. There was a cardiac surgeon and a physical trainer also on this ride that saw the accident and they didn't stop me either because yeah. what was I doing? I was posturing that I was okay. Sure. My, my ego got involved, you know, and basically making me want to, sh to, to posture that, hey, I'm a tough guy. 
you know, I, I suffered this accident, but look at me, I'm shaking it off. Because I'm literally standing on the side of the road, rotating my neck around Jeez. and saying in my head, because I, I remember that my head went all the way over, and I'm thinking to myself, like, wow, this whiplash. I'm thinking whiplash. Yeah. You know, this whiplash is going to just be really painful. The paramedic comes, checks out the guy who's got all the serious stuff at, at that time, what we thought was serious stuff. And I'm like, yeah, give him the ambulance. I'll have a friend come pick up my bike. And, and I'll, um, you know, I'll have them take me to the uh, hospital. And it was uh, my, my girlfriend at the time, Diane. I'm, I'm laughing. In, in the no, it is funny. Because, because I know what happened. Yeah, and yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I'm just amazed at this story every time I hear it. So, sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. And, and so, trying not to draw this out too long. So, you know, Diane takes me to the hospital and she sees how I'm carrying myself. She's a very, she's a very talented physical therapist here in the Virginia Beach area. And she says, you broke your neck. And I'm like thinking, like, no way. In my mind, if you break your neck, it's like you're paralyzed, yeah. you know, and you have major nerve problems or whatever else. And she she could tell that I had some nerve issues with my right arm when I described, you know, not being able to lift my bike up or right. stuff like that. And she saw how I was sort of locked, you know, guarding. She thought I broke, like, my transverse process on the back of my neck. When the CT scan came back from the emergency room, she's like, oh, my God. Yeah. She's like, they're going to want to do surgery, like, right away. I was like, really? Okay. I think I feel all right. <laughs> um yeah. So yeah, broke my C7 vertebrae in two places. I have um, two titanium plates and four screws that have fused my C6 and my C7 together. That's insane, man. And you know, so that's, here's the aspects of me saying that the universe was sending me signals, right? Is before this accident, even at 47 years old, I've been in better bicycle shape, like race-wise, like being able to race at high levels with my peers. This was the best overall fitness I had been in. I had done the VHP program yeah. um, about a month prior to that, and I'm convinced if I hadn't done that, I might not be here today because, wow. it, because it gave me enough upper body strength that you know that I think I survived that incident. Because the, the, the doctor said, he says, for the impact that you sustained, you're very lucky that it was your C7 that went, because if it was your C4 or up, you'd probably be paralyzed or dead. Wow. You know? For our listeners, the VHP is the Virginia High Performance. It's a program that, that uh, as you're transitioning out of the SEAL teams, uh, helps you to get back into physical shape, um, helps you know with your flexibility, your diet, and a lot of other things. So that that's what uh, Bob is mentioning here when he mentioned VHP. Yeah. So so the universe talking to me was I was getting a little bit cocky. You know, I was getting super fit. I was basically able to, to ride with the fastest group and finish, you know, typically throughout the year, I might ride with the A-plus group that's a very fast, competitive group and finish half a dozen times in the year. And I was now at the point where I'm finishing with the group at each ride, right? Nice. So I was feeling very comfortable and sure. capable and perhaps maybe a little bit cocky, <laughs> even for somebody like me. <laughs> uh, and so I believe it was the universe's way of saying, hey, buddy, it's time to check your stuff, you know, and, uh, and develop that ego a little bit. And that's why I wanted to mention the fact that, like, what was it that had me projecting that I was okay yeah. on the side of the road? And it had nothing to do with anything other than my ego. False bravado. Right, right. Wanting to say, hey, I'm this tough guy. And me thinking what other people's opinions of me are, you know. And uh, man, that's, that could have been 
that could have been the death of me. Literally, could have yeah. been the death of me. If yeah. it was a stable fracture, is what they call it. If it was an unstable fracture, like if there was a bone fragment floating around there, or it was internal to my spinal column, me rotating my neck around or moving around at all could have ended it all for yeah. me. Meanwhile, you're helping the guy uh, that's yeah. you know got he's got some injuries, but yeah. probably not life threatening. Uh, and you're trying to pick a bike up and moving around, yeah. moving your head around. I was basically being a big dumb idiot, <laughs> really. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And then there so and then so the healing process was great. You know, Diane was phenomenal at helping me and my family, and I had so many resources and friends. And talking about tribes, you know, I had the cycling, you know, folks coming by and visiting me and bringing me food and stuff like that. I had the SEAL Team community coming and visiting my friends and my family, and I was just just in awe. Of, of everyone, um, you know, looking after me in, in that way. And I'm a huge positive mental attitude person, and I'm a huge, you know, smiles are contagious and pushing that on to other people and saying hi to people and asking them questions in the line. And there was a time uh, we were up in New Hampshire as a family, and I'm walking around in this neck brace, and everywhere I went, went at least one person said something to me, like, oh my goodness, I hope you're not in too much pain, or I hope that you recover well, or do you need anything? Wow. And it was like the first time that I had been on the receiving end of what I had been trying to push on to people of that positivity and outreach and, and caring and being a human to them. It was just so touching and inspiring to, to see that there is that sense of humanity. You know, how many, no, how, no, no matter how much people think that this community is, or this country is so divisive and people are all out for themselves and blah, 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 blah. I got to see you know, the positive side of, of human nature again. And, and that was something that was great to benefit on, you know. Yeah. Um, and then, the I guess the last struggle before I talk about recovery, which my recovery's gone pretty well. I still have nerve damage to my right side. I can't do an actual push-up, which is, you want to talk about humbling for, you know, a Navy SEAL that yeah. prided himself, still pride myself on my fitness. I'm still struggling to get some of that strength back because the nerves are just taking a long time to heal. Um, but I just want to talk about the opioids. You know, because uh, we have many friends and teammates in our military community that struggle with opioid addiction. Yep. And uh, having alcoholism in my family, you know, my, my ex-wife is an alcoholic, that sort of addiction behavior is something that I can see people being judgy about. And I, for one, when I would hear people, like I, I, have, I struggle with the narcotics they prescribe me. I'm thinking to myself, like, what is that? It's a prescription drug. You finish the prescription, and you're done. Like, what's the issue? Yeah. And I know I had been on narcotics before, but it must not have been the same concoction because I was on Valium. I was on, um, I'm always going to misquote this, but it was oxycodone and um, tramadol. And all I kept hearing from people were like, you need to get off these meds. Right? And so the competitive type A person is like, oh, roger that, I need to get off the meds. Well, nobody told me that these are like physically addicting medications and mm -hmm. you have to taper off of them. Right. So I tried going cold, cold turkey. turkey. And I think I had been out of the hospital, I was in the hospital for four nights, I think. I think I had been out of the hospital for four or five days when I just went cold turkey off these pain meds. And the pain that came in had nothing to do with my broken neck. It was, yeah. I was contorted, and it was this escalating pressure on my rib cage and my lungs where like each breath became shorter and shorter and shorter, where I was almost panicked in this pain. I had no idea what it was. 
And I was convinced that I had some further injury that they didn't detect on the CT scans. Like maybe I broke all my ribs and had a punctured lung or something like that. And so I had Diane take me to the emergency room and she's worried about me and she's thinking like, what the heck is the matter with this yeah. guy? Because she be knew fine. that you had come off the, the, the beds? You know, I don't, at, th at this juncture, I'm, I don't think I mentioned it until we were in the waiting room or in the, in the room at the emergency uh, at the hospital for quite some time. And their response was, oh, you are going through withdrawals. So they gave me more meds, right? They, they upped my dosage and gave me more meds. And um, they, they, they gave me some shot. They were like, this will hit you sooner and re relieve the pain. But my, the aha moment was, even though Diane may have been aware of this and she just did, either didn't want to say it to me at the time when I was in the hospital or it didn't dawn on her, but by the time we got back to the house, I, the pain hadn't subsided yet. The effects of, the, of being off the drugs hadn't subsided yet. And I'm sitting on the edge of my bed in that same like panic state of like, <gasps> I can't breathe and, and panicky. And Diane, she says, she says, it's almost like you're going through withdrawals. And as soon as she said that, I was like, that's exactly what it is. And in those scenes we've all seen in the movies about the guys going through the DTs, yeah. usually it's alcoholics, they go into a cold shower. Yeah. I don't know what drew me to do that, but that's, I went right to the shower, I turned it on cold, and it's something about maybe that sensory overload of like sort of resetting how my, my nervous system was firing, yeah. allowed me to calm myself down, get, get back, drugs calm me down, and I was just like, oh my God, this is so scary. Like, now I understand how people could have a real issue with these drugs. And so Diane did the research through a doctor friend of hers and stepped me down off the meds. I, it took like four or six weeks or something like that for me to go to like half pills and all that. And to, you, to and you had cut yourself completely off cold Yeah, turkey. another big stupid idiot move, right? <laughs> wow. This guy's got his life all together. <laughs> so <clears throat> I take back what I said at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, I did but it was so painful, but it was so important for me to learn that lesson so that, you know, one, I can share this message. And for anybody that's out there listening that has loved ones that are on narcotics and, and you're struggling with it, like, it, you got to understand it is a physically addicting pill. I mean, yeah. I pride myself as being a pretty mentally tough person, you know, and disciplined. And, man, it was, like, beyond me. Like, if I hadn't had Diane there helping me get off those narcotics, it would have been so easy for me to just stay on that regimen. Right. And then the minute the pain went in, be like, oh my God, I need more meds because I don't know what I don't know. And it, and I didn't get any of that education. They didn't. They just gave me the darn pills and said, go home and take these when you feel pain. It was a crazy cycle. Yeah, crazy. Yeah, that's crazy. Well, yeah. um, I'm glad that I'm glad that you went through that, only for the sake that sure. you can share that. Sure. I'm glad that you went through that. No, absolutely. But, but yeah, wow, that's uh, that's intense. So now you've tapered off for or so weeks afterwards. Um, and you've, you are you still in the neck brace at the time? Mm -hmm. So yeah. now when you do eventually get uh, the neck brace off, when do you get back on the bike? Oh, I got back on the bike before I got the neck brace off. Oh, wow, okay. <laughs> so how so, was that? Well, so my, my tribe, uh, Johnny Io, who was the executive director for the Outdoor Adventure Team one of the nonprofits, uh, we'll talk about here shortly. Yeah. Uh, he has a recumbent bike. The Navy SEAL Foundation gave me some money to, to get a recumbent bike for the studio as well. Nice. Um, and so that bike was in my den 
probably three or four days at a cert, at a hospital. So I was riding a recumbent bike within the first week of being out of the hospital. I really think it was like four or five days out of the hospital. In my neck brace, in a recumbent bike where my head was supported. Yeah. So I could move my legs and try and get some, it was very low threshold stuff, but I was riding that soon. Wow. Um, Sounds like you got another addiction <laughs> to, to the bike, which is a good well, one. Well, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, and I'm dealing with that now because I want to get overall fitness and not just be just on the bicycle. And so I'm still in the neck brace, and I think four weeks out of the hospital, I go to, you know, my follow-up with the doctor, and he's like, hey, the bone uh, uh, graft is taking very well. You've got a lot of growth, which he didn't anticipate. He thought my bones were soft. He yeah. gave me that comment when he did the surgery, so he was surprised at how well it was healing. And I asked when I could start kind of upping my activity. He's like, well, you can start to slowly up your activity. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. So in a neck brace, now I'm out riding on the recumbent bike on the road. <laughs> <laughs> and I did that twice. And after this, the first one, I did like uh, five or six miles. And the second one, I did like 25 miles. And um, that night, I was in so much pain. And it was because the way the recumbent bike is, my head is resting on a, a headrest, which meant every bump in the road was sort of moving my, my head back and forth and, and, and pounding, which was not good. Yeah. So from there, I went to putting my upright bike on the trainer and started riding my upright trainer indoors, uh, which was a great part of me being able to recover well. Because on the upright trainer, I'm in a static position and I could, you know, I was going through these range of motion exercises. I was moving my neck around and twisting my torso and doing all these things and trying to look behind me like I know I need to do on a bike and replicate those things in a very yeah. safe environment. It's a good um, idea. Yeah, and it, it was a really good part of being able to get back on the bike. And then I had done some outside rides on my own. Um, to get my legs back and to maintain my fitness. And then 90 days post-surgery, I went out with that same group on a Turbo Tuesday ride. It was a little bit of a slower pace. Um, and I committed to ride again. And uh, I wrote a short article on it on LinkedIn. And I, you know, I basically, it's a 10 mile ride from my house to Fat Frogs. Uh, the whole ride there, I'm loosening up and I'm thinking to myself like, okay, you're gonna ride in the group, it's gonna be fine, take it easy. And what I noticed while I'm riding with this group is I was more selective of whose wheels I got on. <laughs> I'm sure. Certainly hyper aware. I would say almost hyper vigilant. You know, my heart rate was probably a little bit elevated yeah. just because I was a little nervous. Anxiety. Yeah. Um, and I was riding a little bit further back from the group than, than I would typically ride. But it was important for me to get back on the horse, you know, and experience that again. I mean, I knew as soon as the accident happened, it wasn't like I was never going to ride again. I'll just be a little bit more cautious. And I know sure. my, my family, my children especially, want me to be a little bit more cautious out there. Yeah. And, and I'm okay. taking that on board. Yeah. So um, the joke, you should see the other guy. What, what happened to the other guy? I mean, uh, we, we went through his injuries. Yeah, so he's, he's, got, a, he's got a full recovery. Um, he and I follow each other on Strava. I haven't seen him in quite some time. Uh, you know, I visited him a couple of times when we were in the, we were in the hospital, at the same hospital yeah. together. Uh, but he's got a full recovery. He still he still runs and Good. rides, and uh, he's a local pastor at, at, a, at a church here, so we do stay in touch. So yeah, you can't yeah. harbor too much animosity towards him because he's yeah. got the big man. No, well, <laughs> for, I, you know, I'm just no, I, well, it's an important point to share too, and yeah. I think I was gonna, uh, I'll, I'll share this little uh, anecdote as yeah. well. But so, 
it was important for me, as soon as I was able to move around in the hospital, I went and let him know face to face, like, I don't blame you. Yeah. Right. You oh, know, good. Because as the story unfolded, I'm sure he blamed himself, you know, because uh, there's some, certain practices and expectations because we are at high risk riding in that environment. So, and people will be very selective of who they let ride in their groups. If they're unsafe, they're like, I don't want to ride with them. So, mm -hmm. um, but it was very important to me to let him know that like, hey, dude, this is like, there's 17 other things I could have done to mitigate this crash. It's yeah. not all on you, so I forgive you. Cool. Don't, don't so no, like no guilt that yeah, he's carrying. I hope that he's not carrying any yeah. guilt, because nice. I, I certainly don't blame him in any ways. You know, Good. everything happens. I mean, I'm not a fatalist, but everything happens for a reason. And like yeah. I said, it was the universe kind of giving me a gut check and maybe ribbing me a little bit. Like, okay, dude, yeah. you, you think transition's going to be all easy from the military? <laughs> Here you go. Here, here's a wake-up call. Here's a challenge. No, no pay, no medical what, insurance like for days six after. or nine months. Yeah, yeah, like, well, oh, my God. So uh, that kind of that and the, uh, the heart of service that we've talked about, which kind of inspired you to join the military, um, join the, the teams, the SEAL teams, um, and has now I want to kind of go from the cycling still touch on the cycling or still tied to the cycling um, but the heart of service how that has led you to be a part of these nonprofits so you're you're involved with the honor foundation you're involved involved with the outdoor adventure team you're uh, uh, part of nostos uh, what what is each of those <laughs> and then what do they do and how did you get involved yeah so we'll go in your order so the Honor Foundation uh, focuses on special operations forces that are transitioning out of the military, target audiences, people that are 18 months to a year before getting out of the military. Uh, they provide executive level preparatory training, which means it's broken into three phases. And each phase is one month long, and the classes are every Tuesday and Thursday evenings. They range from four to five hours. And the first phase is yourself. You focus on yourself. And we actually use Simon Sinek's, you know, why. Finding out what each individual's why is and what their purpose is so that they can figure out what aligns with them on the outside. Uh, the second phase, we focus on our skills, our toolkit. So we build a resume. We practice giving elevator pitches, you know, that are aligned with our why. Uh, and then the third phase, we work into the business sectors that, that we want to be involved with and we go on treks and we visit other businesses and we do mock interviews and all those other things to prepare people for a successful transition. Nice. Uh, I'm on the soft advisory board as well. I went through this last cohort uh, and, and graduated in December. I was selected the honor man. Yeah, my I saw peers, that. Which was like really Congrats. amazing and humbling um, recognition. Uh, and yeah, it's just a phenomenal program that started with the SEAL community specifically grown to include the support people within the, the Navy SEAL community and now it's grown to all of the SAW, all of the Special Operations Forces and all the service branches. And nice. uh, I seek to help them grow, build more campuses around the country and, and get more people involved in that transition program. It's really a great program. Very cool. Yeah. So then what are the other ones? Yeah, so then the Outdoor Adventure Team, uh, I founded back in 2015, partnered with the USO, the local USO here uh, of Hampton Roads in Central Virginia. And the mission statement is simply this, we want to encourage active duty people and their families doing healthy outside activities. I love it. Yeah, and the initial you know, impetus for it was, is I, got, I, I was running Tradet at the time as a, sort of a, a mentor. I wasn't the CMC of Tradet, but I was a master chief over there. As what a is mentor. For the, oh, for the yeah, listeners. it's the training detachment yeah. that is in charge of training all of the East Coast SEAL teams through their pipelines before and prepare them for deployment cycle. 
And so part of my job as a mentor was to go around all the training sites and watch the troops and the platoons going through the training. And what I witnessed was in, they have very little off time, but when they do is typically they were doing non-beneficial practices, you know, <laughs> watching football games all Sunday, which is cool. You can yeah. do that and yeah. all, or going to the bars and burning it down until four o'clock in the morning. That's, <laughs> that's I mean, what I was that's, thinking yeah, about. And that, that, that was the one that drove me to this is like, yeah. okay, this is not a good way to be spending free time. Sure. I'd much rather give them access to something like cycling or paddle boarding or mountain climbing or something like that, yeah. where if they've got a day off or something like that, they can go do something great. And so when we designed this with the USO, that's sort of what we had in mind. And then it evolved into a more of an outreach for active duty, wounded, wounded ill and injured uh, military people and their families and stuff. So. We're still centered here in Hampton Roads, uh, the USO. We've done five events throughout the country, Las Vegas, Nashville, Florida, and then you know here in the Hampton Roads, Williamsburg yeah. area to help grow the program. And we've hired a full-time uh, director now, Michael Schwarting, oh, yeah. uh, who came on board in January and is just knocking it out of the park. We're super excited to nice. see what he's gonna do to grow that brand. And uh, you know, I, I, I've tried to inspire them to set a goal for, hey, let's get two to three more areas within the next two to three years developed within the USO outside of just the Hampton Roads area, looking at Florida um, and then maybe the Washington DC metro area. And then in the long term, five to seven years for the USO to adopt it nationally. The CEO of the USO is behind it. He loves the program nice. and the outreach of it and, and have seeking to grow it. So Good it's a great you, organization. Man. That's yeah. great. And then Nostos, yeah. uh, I co-founded with uh, a man named John Donovan, who I believe you met yep. when you went through the Tuck Next Step program. And that's that's where I met him. He gave a, a, a you know a morning's talk on mindfulness and you know vision statements, and he and I connected afterwards. And we talked about his involvement with uh, the uh, Outward Bound and wanting to help veterans and their veterans initiative. And he and I and Kim Parrott, who's our other partner, we collaborated to build this thing. And so Nostos is a Greek term that means the warrior's journey home. So in all the Greek trilogies or tragedies rather, there's always a portion of the story when they've won their battle or they beat the big monster or whatever else, but as they're on their, their trek back to return home, there's always one other obstacle they have to overcome, whether it's a sea squall or a big monster or something else. Yeah. And that term is Nostos. And so we thought for, if we're going to be seeking to help transitioning veterans, Nostos is an applicable name that, yeah. that, that fits. And we're really, right now we're focused on the soft community as well because I have sort of a, you know, a connection to the community obviously and, and, and I can recruit well from there. And I also know that as we're building this program, I can get the best feedback from them on how to make it, make it developed. But our real mission is to identify what we call at-risk veterans for their transition. Meaning they're not getting a pension, you know, they're, they're not medically retired or retiring from the military. They're getting out somewhere between the four and 14 year mark. And they're not quite sure what they want to do with the rest of their lives. So the model is, is we take them on an outdoor, you know, an outward bound uh, expedition, six to eight days. And in 2020, we're doing quite a few eight day expeditions, which is new to us. They've, in the past, they were only six days long. But we put them on an expedition with a team leader that is a veteran that's already successfully transitioned out of the military to be sort of a mentor slash coach. And we put two team leaders per cohort, so usually between 10 and 12 people in a cohort. And um, during that six-day expedition, there is no connection to the outside world, right? So no cell phones, no, nothing at all, and yeah. it's all introspective work. 
And the idea is, I call it sharpening the sword. We become complacent in our day-to-day -day lives. No yeah. matter how challenging your job is as a service member, I don't care if you're an elite-level SEAL or you're an admin clerk at, at building, you become complacent in that job. Of course. And the idea of getting outside of your comfort zone in a cohort-type environment, which you experienced a little bit with Tuck, yeah. right? I mean, because you, you're taking it through a fire hose, and that gels you together and allows you to be vulnerable with one another. Right. So imagine that doing that in an outdoor environment, in a holistic environment, where we do a lot of introspective work and we, we help the individuals write their purpose statement. What are you about? What are your principles? What is aligned with you? And then we want to help them design the life that they want to live outside the military. Three years, 10 years, 25 years. And then we help build a plan for them to, to actually put that into action, You know, build those milestones and checkpoints with them. And that team leader becomes a long-term mentor for them throughout that process. So they go through the six-day expedition, and at the end of that, we enroll them in a course that's called Create Your Life, which was created by Robert Fritz out of New Hampshire. Yeah. And uh, this Create Your Life app is 90 days of every single day sitting down. We ask the participants, like, this should be your first thing in your morning routine, to build that routine in um, and do it with your cup of coffee. The classes are very simple. They're between five to 10 minute long videos. A lot of introspective work and analysis happening in this video. And you get given this one simple assignment. And you, the, the simplest examples I like to give is assignment on day four might be, hey, I want you to take a five-minute walk outside today. And while you're on that walk, pick up five random items that you see on, this, on, on your walk and hold on to them. And then the next day is, I want you to lay those five items out and hold an image in your head with something that you would want to design with those five items. right? And then you, you then create that image. And so the whole process is to change our mindsets from the military, we're big problem solvers. And there are some creative juices flowing to become a problem solver, but the real beauty is in becoming a creative thinker. Because if you're thinking creatively, creatively, you're getting outside of problem solving, you're actually being proactive in your life and you're creating outcomes, right? And problems just, just fall away. You know, If you're designing a company or a business that you want, and as you're creating it, you're not focusing on the problems, you're focusing on the solutions to get there. Right. And so this process of sort of reprogramming the brain over this 90-day period is really powerful. And we've gotten some phenomenal feedback. You know, one of the young men that we put through the program um, totally changed his course. He was an air crewman on 53 helicopters. We got him in the Skill Bridge program. So we went through the Create Your Life process, yeah. lined out exactly what his purpose statement was, what he wanted to do. He was a little bit all over the place for initially what he wanted to do, and now he's like, you know what, I want to become a PT, a physical therapist. Nice. So we got him in the Skill Bridge program out in Seattle. He's doing Skill Bridge with them, becoming a PTA. Nice. He's already enrolled in school. He's going to finish his enlistment in September. I think I've got that right. What month are we in? No, I'm sorry, it's March. So he'll finish his enlistment and get out of the Navy in March. Wow. And then he's so already got a, the Yeah, and then yeah. so now he's got a paid position out there in Seattle and he's gonna be enrolled in school and work on his PTA program and all that stuff. And he and he, you know, stays in touch with us. John Donovan and I we touch base with him every month, yeah. check on his progress, and he absolutely is like the the, the create your life process was absolutely, you know, significant nice. in making that turn. For for the listeners, uh, Skillbridge is actually uh, basically how I am doing what I'm doing right now with, vet with Veterans Path. Skillbridge is a program for transitioning military that allow you allows you to do a job as an intern for an outside organization while you are still um, an active duty military member. So you still get your 
military salary, but you're working for another organization. Again, that's kind of how I'm doing this one with, with Veterans Path. Um, as far as um, the outdoor adventure team and NOSDOS, how do, uh, one, I'll put the link to each one of these organizations in the summary for the podcast, but how does somebody go about getting involved with those two? I mean, you mentioned that they're kind of soft uh, centric, but well, not, so the, not, outdoor, not exclusive. the outdoor adventure team is not at okay. all. Okay. Uh, I was, I would almost say it's a soft exclusive. <laughs> we have much more uh, regular military folks and, and family members participating in there. We also do women's outreach. I missed that piece. So okay. yeah, we do women's outreach uh, and survivals of, of military sexual trauma. You know, so we do yeah. groups where it's just them. You know, we'll set. We have a studio. Uh, we have an office space and studio on Little Creek that's right behind the Seal Heritage Center. For those of you that are familiar with the Little Creek base, and uh, yeah, so how do they get involved? Um, you know, we will put the links in there, and it's open for anybody that's active. The outdoor adventure team specifically is open for active duty and wounded, ill, and injured people and their family members. Nice. Um, and they can register with any of the USOs uh, to get there. And, uh, you know, right now, everything is really centered around sort of the Virginia Beach area, but we do do some trips uh, around the country. So yeah, we may have to have a, uh, another talk offline yeah. um, about the, the women's outreach programs and the MSTs piece of things. Yeah. Sounds like there's a lot of overlap with what you do and what Veterans Path yeah. does. And we're starting to get some Virginia Beach based retreats. Yeah. Or the um, same with Nostos too. There's a lot yeah. of overlap yeah. too. So we'll definitely have be able to collaborate. We'll definitely <laughs> be able talk. to collaborate. Yeah. All right. So um, Veterans Path focused on mindfulness and meditation. We've been talking a lot about your time in the SEAL teams. Everything you <laughs> No, not everything, but I think there's, there's, we definitely touched on it. Yeah. But I want to get into your what, how did you call it? Your awokeness. Yeah. Your, your journey. Oh, so you pulled that quote from me. Okay. So <laughs> yeah, cool. yeah. So yeah. So as I wrote these down, I want to talk about the awokeness piece first, then I'll get into mindfulness and then yeah, into please. meditation. So I've told this story a number of times. Uh, so the awokeness for me was when I came into the military, I was 17. I was 18 going through a school before heading off to buds and doing some introspective work in my spirituality. I think I was going through that at the time because part of my subconscious recognized what I was going to be asked to do someday. And I want to be able to come into terms with humanity of like, okay, if, if I'm going to be asked to take someone's life sure. on the battlefield for my nation, like what are the repercussions of that? What does that mean to me as a human being when I was brought up Christian, you know, with those fundamentals and everything? So I started studying all of the religions and, um, you know, Buddhism struck a real chord with me and sort of their presence. And Buddhism isn't technically a religion, actually. It's more of a philosophy. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I started kind of dabbling into meditation and I failed at it miserably. And I'll talk about that when I get into the mindfulness and meditation piece. But then fast forward. So there was always a component of that spirituality to my nature of, of work, right? But it didn't come to full circle with me until my second tour in Bosnia. Uh, we had, our mission there was to capture people indicted for war crimes, you know, because of the, the atrocities that were held there during yeah. the Bosnia conflicts in the former Yugoslavia. And the first person that we took into custody and we were escorting to the Hague in um, Holland was like an eye-opening moment for me because this individual was responsible for killing over 10,000 people. Jeez. And he looked like he could have been anybody's grandfather. So my team was responsible for, you know, after we'd gotten him, taken him into custody, 
Now we're flying him to The Hague on an uh, C-130. Yeah. And okay, yeah. so we had to do a physical inspection of him with the flight surgeon to make sure that we didn't harm him in any way. And uh, that process was going on. He was blindfolded and stripped naked and searched and everything like that. And then right after that process, the next one was, this is all on the aircraft. Well, that's wheels spinning and we're getting ready to take off. There's a judge from The Hague on the aircraft there reading him his rights. Wow. And so this guy is standing there blindfolded you know, with nothing but his boxer shorts on and handcuffed behind his back, being read his rights. And when she gets to the line that says, you're going to be tried for crimes against humanity, I'm this, I think I was 23 or so years old, 24 years old, and I'm like thinking to myself, like, how does somebody get there? How does a guy that looked like he could be anybody's grandfather be responsible for the deaths of 10,000 people? Now, he didn't personally execute those people, but he was responsible. Sure. He was the officer that pointed the finger and, and gave people the task to do that. And so as I was doing that kind of reflection, you know, I recognized that at the end of the day, he is no different than me. You know, his only difference is, is where he was born and brought up and the values that were instilled in him and sort of that sort of doctrine that he decided to, you know, gravitate to, which was probably no choice of his. It was just the path that he was on. You know, and I say this a lot in my talks, is that all human beings, we're 99.9999999% the same. We are all connected. And to me, when I look back at that moment, I was like, I, I don't ever want to be like that. Yeah. If I'm going to have this great responsibility, how do I maintain my humanity, you know, and being asked to do those things? And I, I don't want to go down this slippery slope because I'm sure that's how it was for that individual. Yeah. You know, and it became a slippery slope. It didn't even come. And, and he thought, in his mind, he was justified in doing everything he did. Yeah. And I'm not saying he's right, but I'm sure that's how his mind was working right. with it. Um, and so as I went through that piece, it, it became uh, a, a way for me that I humanized the enemy. And thank God I went through that process because after 9-11, things got really real, you know? I mean, up until that point, yeah, I was doing real-world missions, but I never had to shoot it around in anger, you right. know? But after 9-11, that was a different game, you know? And uh, that ability, you know, the military has a, a um, paradigm that, that's really difficult for a lot of folks to overcome is we are a Western society that wants to say that we're modern and humanists and, and you know, but at the same time, what we ask our military to do is inhuman. It is not in human nature to take someone's life unless you're a sociopath, right? Yeah. And, but to be in the military and do what needs to be done at times, the only way we can do that is if we dehumanize the enemy, you know, and that is part of a purposeful path that may have been subconsciously driven to years and years ago, but now it's almost purposely done through our cadence calling and other ways that we talk about the enemy and how we talk about the targeting prospect. That's why we don't name our objectives necessarily. That's why we put different names on them, all yeah. those other things. It's a way of us to distance ourselves from what they actually are. I mean, it's even why the, the shapes of our targets on the range are humans mm -hmm. so that we get used to just shooting a shape yeah. So that when we're shooting somebody on on the battlefield, it's just a shape. Yep. And so what's important and what I teach a lot of my folks is there's a process that we have to do if we're going to survive through that with our whole selves and not suffer these internal injuries is we have to rehumanize the enemy. And 
I was able to do that, I believe, because I went through this process in Bosnia and my self-reflection and all those things, that I was able to do that instantaneously. Um, and I, that's mindfulness. And, you know, the, the, the little um, anecdote I was going to share with you is, uh, is this quick little story, right? So you're riding your bicycle up this really steep hill with the whole goal, like you're looking forward to getting to the top of the hill so that you can coast down the other side and enjoy the fresh air and, and the fulfillment of that challenge that you just finished. And as you're riding down that hill as fast as you can, there's a kid on the side of the road that whips a rock at you and hits you right in the side. And what's that immediate emotion that you have at that moment, right? Anger. It's anger. I mean, I even get, I, I can sense it even just and then, telling that And story. then you turn around and you start riding back to where that kid is. And when you find the kid, he's standing on the side of the road, bawling his eyes out and saying, Mr., I'm really sorry that I threw that rock at you, but I didn't know how else to stop you. My brother's been stung by a bee and he's allergic. Right? And so, Damn it, Bob, you're going to make me well up again. That's <laughs> great. Well, it means you're in touch with yourself, brother. Yeah. But so here's what's, this is where I believe mindfulness, there's many things about mindfulness that could be really powerful. But being present in the moment, right? When that scenario was given to me during a talk, right? So yeah. someone was using that as a facilitator. And she asked, like, hey, how did that make you feel? I could quite honestly tell her I was anger. I seeked for understanding and forgiveness. All happened within a fraction of a second. In my mind, by the time I turned around on the bike, I knew I had already forgiven that kid. Wow. You know? And that, I believe, is one of the powers of mindfulness because you can't hold on to anything. And if you want to be present and in the moment, like, you got to just let that stuff go. You know? And the same thing when I broke my neck. It's that same sort of process. Yeah. Like, there's holding on to anything or blame or any of those other things or, like, that takes power away from you, right? The power is in, in you being able to kind of overcome those things. Um, yeah, so my past, so you got my awokeness, right? That's what I consider my awokeness is like, hey, we're all human beings, right? Yeah. The only thing that differs me from my enemy is sort of our upbringing and our backgrounds. And, you know, I, I went through a whole sort of piece when I was the Ops Master Chief in an Afghanistan tour for the SOTA when we were doing kinetic strikes. Um, and, the first kinetic strike we did, the jock jumped up for joy, and I was absolutely repulsed. And we had three strike forces still out there that needed to be watched after in our ops shop. So I let them, basically once all the guys were inside of the perimeter, I asked for everybody to come into the conference room. And uh, I said, never again. And they're like looking at me. And I talked about the humanization, the dehumanization, I said, hey, I said, the only thing that made that individual today different than us is where he grew up okay. and what he believes in. And I said, that is somebody's father, brother, son, right? And that is not something to be celebrated. And, you know, I know that I made an impact to everyone in that crew, and I, and I went a little bit further into depth about what that all means to us and why it's important for us as Americans to represent that. And I also kind of talked about my philosophy on kinetic strikes, which is that's a whole other podcast on itself. Yeah. But what I loved was, you know, our fires officer, right, who was a F-18 pilot that probably dropped hundreds of munitions over his career, right, came up to me with tears in his eyes and said, thank you so much. He said, because I was also repulsed you know, by that behavior of people celebrating another person's death. Yeah. But I didn't know how to approach it, you know. And uh, it's it's just really important. So there's that's my awokeness side. Um, 
the mindfulness piece, you've heard a little bit of this story before. Yeah. Um, I just is call it the, I'll the, spilled the, milk. the spilled milk. So my son, George Paul, we called him GP. He was about four years old. I came home from work, just a regular actually day in the office. I might've been doing some training or whatever else, but nothing stands out in my mind about that day other than me coming home, saying hi to my family. I poured a glass of milk for my son and he knocks it over. And I yell at him, like angrily yell at him. And he's standing on the kitchen floor looking up at me, shaking and crying. And I just like, I looked at him. And I was mortified that how could I behave that way? And I like, I went, I, I apologized to him. I put myself in a timeout. <laughs> and I'm sitting there reflecting, like, how did I get there? And, and I'm sitting there thinking about like, what my day was like. And I'm like, there was a bunch of jackassery going on at work. You know, people not meeting expectations or behaving inappropriately or whatever else. And I was able to be calm as a cucumber and, and be very present in that moment and talk to them like a regular person and not lose my temper and keep my cool. And then yet I come home to my loving family, my beautiful four-year-old son, and I tear at him. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what is wrong with me? You know, and that's when I seek some help. And I went and talked to our, you know, our clinical psychologist that was on board there at group two and helped me deconstruct this. And he kind of pushed on being present in the moment and mindfulness. And the simplest exercise he gave me was, Bob, this is what I want you to do is when you get home from work, I want you to sit in your driveway for three to five minutes, focus on your breathing, think about gratitude, being grateful for the family that you have when you walk through that door and then be in that present moment. And, uh, that was like eye-opening yeah. for me and so calming for me and allowed me to reconnect with my family in a way that, that, that felt good. And that made me get back into seeking out meditation. As I had mentioned earlier, like years and years before when I was doing that research on Buddhism, what turned me off from meditation was all the books I was reading were very regimented. Mm -hmm. Oh, if you're going to meditate, you need to sit cross-legged. You got to stack your vertebrae one on top of right. each other, and you got to tuck your chin this way, and you got to breathe this way and that way. And it was so overwhelming to me that I was convinced I wasn't doing it right. And then when you find somebody like a thick knock Han, you know, or other practitioners that basically say you can't do it wrong, yeah. you know, that like as long as it's purposeful and your awareness is in the right place, then you cannot do it wrong and that you cannot ever turn off your monkey mind. You know, I've been yeah. meditating for years now. It's like trying to stop and, your heart. Yeah. And so it was so great to be able to tap into mindfulness, use it, and, and then be able to talk about it and share that experience. It was really... Um, open and honest to share those experiences with my teammates because I didn't want anybody else to have to have their son shaking their boots, you know, or their daughter shaking or their parents or anybody being afraid of them because of how they behaved. And what I noticed was so many of our teammates feel the same way is that they're totally calm and cool at home at, at work and then they get home and they're a raging, you know, jerk. Yeah. And nobody wants to be that way. And so getting back into that meditation part of it and realizing that just sitting and being conscious of my breath and all those other tools was a great way for me to kind of calm myself down, reconnect, focus on myself, try and pull away from my ego and be more self-aware and present. You know, and when I coach and teach people, I talk about, you know, you can't control your thoughts, but you can control your awareness, you know, and like, because people, I can't control your mind. Well, your mind and your awareness are two separate things. Right. You know, I describe it as your mind is the repository of all the information, 
and your awareness is where you're putting your intent. You know, I so like that. so when you can when you can model that awareness for what your intentions are, now you can manipulate your thoughts. You know, and so focus teaches the kids they call it stinking thinking. I'm big about self-talk, you know, and we all do it. We all, you talk about that inner critic, you know. Yeah. So we all have that negative self-talk that comes in. Yeah. But if you can be aware about it, then you can kind of shunt it and shut it off. And you can, like, I'll take notes and be like, oh, this crept into my mind today. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to address that later on in a meditation. I'm going to meditate on it. But for now, it's important for me to be positive. And then I can turn that self-talk in and use some vision statements, you know, and close my eyes and, and imagine what my outcome wants to be or what environment I want to be or even what mood I want to be. And it can be as simple as, hey, I'm going to close my eyes and remember a happy moment. I'm going to remember a time that I made my family laugh or joyful or whatever else and find that spirit, you know, and be, and be able to draw into that. Helps me get out of some of my depressed states, right? Because because we all get there and we all get sad and whatnot. Um, yeah, so it's been just like totally life-changing for me to be able to tap into those things. And then meditation, I was doing on a regular basis before going to NICO. Um, NICO kind of reamped my awareness on it. I've used some of the resources they provided with us. You know, we uh, use Inner Balance, which is, uh, you know, a heart-mind coherence yeah. application. Yeah, the heart math. I yeah, guess. heart math is huge. And uh, being able to tune into that has been really powerful for me. And I made a commitment uh, this past year, at the end of the year, to really up my game on meditation. And so I'm proud to say that, that I've been sticking with the regimen, and it looks something like this, is I typically wake up between 4 a.m. and 4.30 in the morning, and I'll get up, I'll brush my teeth, go to the bathroom and I'll come back and meditate. And to be honest, like 90% of the time, I actually just do it right back in bed. I, I have a little breathing spot in my master yeah. bathroom that I can go to from time to time. But what I found is I want to focus on that meditative state of my mind and I'm not quite at the point of getting rid of the discomfort because I have a lot of back and neck pain, so the sure. the most comfortable place. But this regimen has been amazing. So I've been about, this will be my seventh week in it and I meditate for up to an hour and a half. Wow. Right? Like, wow. Yeah. Like if you, if I... If you told me a year and a half ago that I'd be meditating for over 30 minutes at a whack, I'd be like, you're crazy, <laughs> you know? But, and sometimes they're guided meditations or sometimes it's just a little calming background music. Yeah, we've actually else. meditated simultaneously on Inside Timer. You know, like there's a couple <laughs> of times when it says, you know, at the end of your meditation it says, these are the people that you've been meditating. Oh, that's funny. I've never looked at that aspect. I've never looked at that aspect. Yeah, though. sure enough. Yeah. Um, but so here, I want to share with the audience, like, here's the benefits, and this might get a little bit too interpersonal, but I really don't care, <laughs> is, um, like, so meditate for an hour to an hour and a half, and it really is just focusing on emptying my mind. I might do, like, 61 point, focusing on some wellness stuff or spirit or energy building or whatever else. I'll, I, I might have some intent that I'm pushing my awareness on, but frankly, a lot of it is just trying to empty my mind and get into that what I believe I can perceive as a theta or gamma state in my mm -hmm. mind, and I call it little sensitive vibration. You know, I don't know if you've experienced it when you yeah. meditate, but your brain just sort of like vibrates and like it's an awesome feeling. And bliss up and field. Yeah, it's, it's a bliss field. Yeah. And up until maybe three weeks ago, if that came, it was fleeting. And it was like, it was sort of like an addiction of a feeling, like it's a bliss feel, so I chased it. And for those of you that don't meditate, what I'm talking about is you have this sensation of like absolute peace, blankfulness, but it's it's happy. 
And as soon as you put your awareness on it, it disappears. Yep. <laughs> and you're like, gosh darn it. And you want to try and get it back. And then the harder you try and get it back, the further it is away from you. Yeah. But going through this really intensive, intentful, longer durations, I found that I can get into that phase on a regular basis. I may not be able to hold it for more than a few seconds at a time, but I can get back to it more and more and more. Nice. And the positives that I found is like I'm sleeping like phenomenally. Um, I'm waking up feeling super energized. It's a great part of my routine that I can take ownership of. There's no other distractions happening in my life. Um, my attitude has been improved. My production level has been improved. My sex drive has been improved. And I'll just say my hormone levels and all those other things have been improved over the last six or seven weeks. So this is a practice that I'm going to continue to do. Nice. And then I do a similar shorter routine between 20 and 30 minutes at night. So I'm, I'm meditating upwards of two hours a day. That's wild, man. Good and I'm actually you. like posting my morning meditations on uh, uh, Strava, Strava in the morning yeah. just to hold myself accountable and to let other people know that like, hey, this is this is normal and okay for you to say. Yeah. You know, And it also allows me to see because it, I'll start my watch and it's recording my average heart rate so I can tell from a training perspective yeah. if I'm overtraining or not. You know, if it right. continues to go up, I know I need to back off my training. But my recovery from intense training exercises or hard work days and all that stuff has just been phenomenal while I've been doing this extra fitness yeah. meditation. At one point, uh, you know, I, was, uh, I used to be a data junkie. Yeah. And, uh, I was wearing all the wearables, the, the Whoop and the, I mean, my Apple Watch that I still wear. Um, and I started tracking my heart rate as I was meditating. Not not just as I was meditating, but when I was re meditating regularly, regularly, how my heart rate was changed throughout the day. Yeah. And it's dramatic. Yeah. And then and then you talk about the, the heart rate variability, that changes, you know, it dramatically as well. And your your recovery. The coherence. Yeah, the coherence, it's it's wild. All yeah. that stuff. I, yeah. I love all of it. I, so the the coherence is what I'm really trying to fine tune how I can fit it in my life because I find that I'm most coherent. I mean, I can hit like eight to nine levels on there. Yeah. If I'm very intently paying attention to my breathing and the coherence and heart breathing, if I'm following that, but it doesn't feel relaxing and meditative to me because I'm like yeah. trying to hold this high level. Right. Right. And if I, but then I wear the same device yeah. while I'm doing a very intentful meditation and it might be 1.7, yeah. you know? So I'm trying to figure out how that fits. I think you the know? two together complement one another. Yeah. I don't think one uh, by themselves is necessarily the answer all, uh, yeah. end all, be all. But yeah. Well, that's awesome, man. Um, what have we not covered that you would like to talk about? I know. That's uh, the bike ride across the country that I mentioned. Ah, man, that's, that's going to be the horrible one for me. So. Um, yeah, so it's. I'm saying that it's horrible because I've had to delay it. Oh, yeah, shoot. yeah. No, no, it's okay. I like. I had planned to do it last year, um, and then with my uh, family life, you know, my, my ex-wife's just not in a spot where she can take care of the kids yeah. at all. Um, so I had to cancel, and now I don't have an infrastructure to help because basically I can't leave the kids alone. The ride's going to take 30 days. Okay. To do it correctly. Um, so I'm delaying it for now. It's still it's on my list of things to do. I've got some supporters that that'll help back it, um, and the the impetus is to or the idea is to ride across the country from the west coast to the east coast, um, interviewing as many World War II veterans as I oh, can, wow. and Vietnam veterans and Korea War veterans, and and to get them to tell their story, you know. And there's a phenomenal nonprofit out there. It's called. Uh, Veterans Center of America, I think. Uh, I'll have to rectify yep. that for you. Oh, good. That might not be the right the right 
it's been a while since I've been in contact with them. But their whole mission is to protect the legacy of our veterans. And so they're going to provide the filming equipment and everything like that and connect me with the veterans along the path. Cool. Because they see it's important for us to be able to share their stories. And so my idea is, as I look at like the 22, right, the fact that we have so many people yeah. committing suicide and homeless veterans, and, and I was looking at this a couple of years ago, I'm like, our veterans have so many resources today, and yet we have all these problems. You know, w what is the difference between the greatest generation, you know, and us? I mean, yeah, they had their three-week boat trip, you know, and yeah. that's, that's the analogy people have given us against the PTSD and depression and everything. They're right. like, oh, well, they had three weeks to decompress when they came home. That can't be the only difference in that community, that they've been so successful and connected. And so... My goal is to be able to get them to tell their stories and ask them about how did you deal with, how did you cope with, you know, what did it look like for you um, to share those stories of what their resiliency looked like so that we can model it. And what I think we're going to pull out of it is what I experienced as a young kid. Now, I grew up around a lot of uh, World War II veterans. Both my grandparents were World War II veterans. And the, the um, vacation place that my family has up in New Hampshire um, every 4th of July, one of our, our friends up there had a, a picnic or a barbecue, and there was a lot of World War II veterans there. And I was a young man watching these folks interact with each other. They got to see themselves, see each other once or twice a year, maybe. And they were basically checking in with one another. Nice. Oh, hey, oh, did you hear about Bob? Oh, yeah, Bob's been drinking too much. He lost his job. Well, guess what? They're not pushing Bob a resource. They're getting involved with his life. Yeah. They would come up with a plan right then and there. Like, hey, hey, I'm going to go. I'll go spend time with Bob. We're going to get him off the sauce. We'll help him find a job. We'll get his house cleaned up. They got involved with him, and they cared about him, you know, making sure that he was productive and getting his life back. Yeah. And I know veterans still do that today, but I think we're more quick to throw a resource to somebody, you know. Yeah, and, absolutely. Um, and... That's the story that I want to be able to unfurl while I ride across the country and document and get people engaged and, and to find resources for those veterans that want to engage with other veterans to make it safe for them. Because the other side of this coin of veterans that are suffering from depression, and you may have experienced this as, as well, is if you are a friend or a teammate of somebody and you're getting involved with their life and trying to help them deal with their depression, suicide ideations, you're afraid of pushing too far. Mm -hmm. You know. The last thing I want to do is be another stressor to this person's life where they say internally, like, oh, my God, now I'm bringing Bob down with me. Mm -hmm. And then you become that tipping point that makes them, you know, make a horrible decision, you know, and trying to balance that out. So you can't do these things on your own because there is risk when you're kind of trying to bridge those gaps. But and we, when I do this ride, we will have resources. I'll have mental health practitioners and all those things either along the path or being interviewed be amazing, and all those yeah. other things to kind of share those stories and talk about approaches and, and stuff that'll like that be to empower everybody else to kind of get involved. Video? Yeah, video. Yeah. yeah. So Mostly cool, video. man. Doing, great. doing newspaper interviews and whatever else, you know. Yeah. Maybe even create a short documentary about it or whatever Very else. cool. We'll I love it, man. At this point, it's probably going to be like 2022 okay, <laughs> before still, I do hey, it. But that'll be here before we know it, man. Yeah. Life seems to be accelerating. So... Well, awesome. If, uh, if people want to reach out to you about anything, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Link, LinkedIn is the best way. I'm on a few social media platforms, but LinkedIn is by far the more the one that I prefer to do outreach stuff on cool. people. So right. yeah, you can find me on Bob Newman at, you know, on LinkedIn. There you go. Bob Newman, LinkedIn. So, Bob, thanks so much, man. This has been amazing. Um, 
downside is uh, I think both of us have choked up a couple times in this conversation. What's and the downside about that? No, I'm, I'm joking, but it's we're going to reveal the myth or like break the myth that seals are Superman. I mean, <laughs> hey, but we're still in, Superman. In, in all honesty, I think that makes us Superman. Yeah. The fact that we can be vulnerable. Oh, I can't tell you. I get so much positive feedback from people that feel like they can, they know who I am and I can yeah. connect with them. And I'll take that They're super, genuine. I'll take that superpower over any other fitness or yeah. other attribute, you know, and I, I do fear that a lot of people that don't know our communities and not just SEALs, but any of the special forces think we're all robots yeah. that just like are given an order and we execute like without, you know, any thought process at all. And that couldn't be anything further from the case. I think Agreed. some of us are the biggest humanitarians on the planet. Yeah. You know, we watch people, you know, that have to assault a target in one minute and then handing out soccer balls the next, you know, or caring for, you know, the spouses and, and yeah. children or, or things of that nature on target as well. So it's yeah. definitely one of the things I love about the community, man. Yeah. Long live the brotherhood. Yeah. Well, it's been awesome, man. Thank you so yeah, much thanks. for, for the time. Uh, I think uh, there is so much to this particular episode. I may have to break it up into two. People may not be able to handle this much awesomeness in one show. So, <laughs> uh, anyway, um, for our listeners, thanks for listening to the show. Please check out Veterans Path online at veteranspath.org. We, too, are on social media. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Pinterest, Twitter, and YouTube. And remember, listeners, you can directly support Veterans Path by clicking on the support button on the podcast or by visiting veteranspath.org forward slash donate. Thank you all and have a blessed day. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Veterans Path Podcast. Please follow us on social media and think about sharing your story with us there and potentially on the show. Together, we can make mental health a priority, improving and saving lives.